0: Anything about uh, Ephesians so far? What's that? Yep. So a lot about how the church should function. A little bit about the hierarchy and the strategy of the church. That's correct. Anybody remember any of the details about that? Fold wisdom of God to the authorities in the heavenly realms and on the earth. So the the church is actually to reveal the glory of God. It's to be part of this big plan that God has to put everything under his feet. So the church has this big, big important part. And then in all that, he talks about sort of how then it ought to look that God has appointed people, he's given people whose job is to equip or prepare people to serve, and then the church is to serve, and as they serve each other, and presumably the community around them as well, um, then these things happen, then the church is, is what it ought to be. So we talked a lot about kind of where that breaks down, we kind of talked about where that doesn't seem to happen, and why it doesn't seem to happen, and... and um, I think bottom line, kind of we all concluded is whatever the role that God has given us, we need to do that, <laughs> whatever that is. And, um, and that certainly is, is what we can do. And then we were just about to get into Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Uh, no, we started Ephesians chapter 5 already, where he starts talking about, okay, if, if this is what the church should do and how we're supposed to build one another up in love, then he starts talking about what that looks like what the community, how the community should look to one another. And there were three main things that we talked about should reflect this, com- this mature community that wasn't tor- thrown here and there by every wind of doctrine. We talked about three things that would kind of reflect that community. Does anybody remember what any of those three things were? Let's see. Love, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes yes and gratitude yeah we talked about how he keeps kind of coming back to these ideas of love and gratitude and transparency that a commu- that a church that's mature not that these are even the what you are trying to do but this is almost the end result of that maturity that as everyone is built up into the the maturity of the, of sharing the knowledge and the faith and the son of god and isn't blown here and there by every wind of doctrine that you end up with a community which is uh, reflecting love and gratitude and transparency, authenticity, no self-righteousness. Um, good. So that's kind of where we were. And then from there, he begins, to t- he begins to broaden out. So he talks about how we ought to live in the church. Now he's going to talk about how we ought to live in our families, how that ought to look. And in the same way, and this is where we left off last week. Uh, oops, we already went through all this. Sorry, I went back too far. In the same way that... Um, had that discussion and here we go in the same way um, that there's a hierarchy in the church and not everybody always likes the fact that there's a hierarchy but there's a structure uh, in the church not a hierarchy in terms of superiority or inferiority but just in terms of the roles in the same way that there is that kind of structure in the church there's a structure in the family and so he begins to talk about that and we were let's see Verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's this idea of we all submit to each other. That kind of summarizes a lot of what love was about, that we are looking out for other people's interests rather than our own. And then he goes in verse 22, he says, "Um, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And I think that it's important to recognize that if Paul only meant that wives were to submit to their husbands identically in the way we all submit to one another, he wouldn't have made another sentence here. He would have just said, all of you are submitting. But within the structure of the family, there's, there's a, an element here that's true for the wives. And again, but it's also in the same way that we submit to one another. We don't submit to one another out of a sense of inferiority or out of a sense of you're more spiritual. I don't submit to you because you're more spiritual than I am, because you're closer to God than I am. This is hard for us to grasp, I think, even in the church sometimes. We, it's really easy to assume that, the, that those in authority, that those who are given to equip us are more spiritual and certainly there are qualifications that Paul is going to give. But remember, to this point, he hasn't given. I mean, he probably has them in his head, but he hasn't instructed Timothy or anybody about what an elder should look like. And there is no instruction for what an evangelist should look like or even what a teacher should look like, unless you assume that's the same as a pastor. And so he hasn't given that yet. Certainly there's an expectation of, of being filled with the Spirit of a certain character, certain qualities. I'm not disputing that. Um, but there's nothing about it that makes somebody in that position is not there because they are closer to God, because they have more wisdom, because they are more spiritual. That's something Paul is never argues and never wants to get close to arguing. So in the same way, when he says, wives, submit to your husbands, it's not for any of the multitude of reasons that over the years people have tried to explain this uh, in commentaries because men are um, closer to God, because uh, women are more easily deceived, because... Uh, None of those. None of those are the reasons. Paul gives some reasons, which we'll get to in one of the other passages, which are in themselves a little bit hard to sort through. But we'll get to those. But for now, he just is making the statement of how the, how the structure works. Just as he said, in the church, you have people who prepare and equip, and you have people who then serve each other. And he really places a lot of emphasis on how, that, how important that service to each other is. That's really where the rubber meets the road. Um, and so again, it's not about a matter of who's more indispensable. We're all indispensable. So then he comes and he says the same thing. He, he starts talking about in the family and he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And the difficulty with Paul is he says things so strongly in this regard, right? He could have just said, submit to your husbands and be a lot less to kind of work through, but he actually connects it to as to the Lord, which is a really sort of strong picture. He goes on and he says, husbands, love your wives. But in the same way, he says it He says it very strongly. So just to read through this, "'Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, "'for the husband is the head of the wife, "'as Christ is the head of the church, "'his body, of which he is the Savior. "'Now as the church submits to Christ, "'so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. "'Husbands, love your wives, "'just as Christ loves the church "'and gave himself up for her. "'To make her holy, "'cleansing her by the washing with water "'through the word, "'and to present her to himself "'as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle "'or any other blemish, blemish, "'but holy and blameless.' In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery, says Paul, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband." What happens here is that Paul is saying two things at once. And he's not saying that these two things are exactly parallel or exactly synonymous. It would be a mistake, for example, to think that he's saying that husbands ought to love their wives and give himself up for her because in doing so he makes her holy. That's not what he's saying. When he starts talking about the the making of her holy and cleansing and presenting her to himself as a radiant church, he's clearly now launched off into talking about what Jesus did. But he's not saying the husband does exactly the same thing. He's talking about the kind of leadership, the kind of authority, the kind of headship, and the kind of love that Jesus has. And we're to share that kind of love. But the, the impact and the reason and how that functions, you can take the whole box if you'd like, um, is not identical. The impact is not the same because Jesus is different than every man in the world is. Um, but, the, but the reasoning is the same. So I just think here again, he's just giving us a picture. And instead of like we do with a lot of things as we go through the scripture, as much as possible to step back and just say, what is Paul saying without introducing all the, the various things that have happened in our culture that reflect this? Uh, if we just step back and we just say, okay. He says, wives submit to, the, to your husbands as to the Lord, for the, husband is the, uh, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of this church, his body of which he is the savior. If we just step back and say, that's confusing enough without dragging everything else in. What, what, what would we say? If we're hearing this, we're, we're the church in Ephesus and someone's reading this to us because remember it's being read probably to them, not something they're going to pour over. What do they make of this? And if you want to bring in what you understand of the Ephesian culture, you can. We're not going to argue whether that, that, that doesn't mean it doesn't apply today, but you can certainly do that. But just what do you think that Paul is saying? What does he want the wives to do? Let's just try to boil it down to its essence at the moment. As as well as we can. Won't be perfect. Meredith? in in what way So he's saying don't be, so I'm hearing you say, you know, if, if what, they should, what the, church, the people in Ephesus should take from this is don't dishonor your husband, which means what? Can we rephrase that? We don't, we don't, say, we don't ever use that phrase anywhere except in scriptural spiritual talk, right? <laughs> I've never ever once said to somebody, you dishonored me. Um, what does that mean? What do we mean by that? I don't know if they were or not, but so not saying bad things about your husband. All right, it's a good start. What else might it mean? What does it say? What does that mean? Sure. So so just, just redefine that term for me. Pretend I've n- I have no idea what the word submit means. You you gave me some other examples. Feel free to use those examples, but what is it that they're doing? What does Christ do with the Father and what do we do with each other? So casting each other in a good light, which is back to the idea of honoring. What else? Okay. Okay. That's a a big statement there. I think it's an accurate one. No, I think it's an accurate one. And I think it's accurate because it, it, it fits everything else we've just heard so far, like you said. Right? It even fits Christ, doesn't it? So when he says in the same way and talks about what Christ did, it 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 is a a reflective thing. There is that. That is true. And it even fits his example here where he says, You should submit to the Lord, I mean you should submit to your husbands as you would to the Lord, not because they're equivalent to the Lord, but it's the same idea. You're letting go your rights for the sake of someone else, whether it's the Lord or your husband. That doesn't mean they're equally worthy of it. That's not his point, and that's where we get lost. <laughs> it just means it's the same idea. It's the same kind of submission. Okay, fair enough. So what's the, what is it? Um, I'll leave the big question on that for a second, but let's just go to husbands for a second. So then when he talks about husbands, husbands love your wives... Uh, We're going to skip the kind of parentheses where he gets all flowery about the gospel for a second. That's really important. We'll come back to that. But for now, we'll skip it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. So he gives a lot of it. He gives actually a lot more explanation there what that means than he did about submission. We'll, we'll leave the why in a second. I have two why questions we're going to leave. But just go ahead, and again, he gives a lot of explanation, but I want us to put it in our own words again. So what does it mean then for the husband to love the wife? Put her first. That actually sounds really similar to what you just said about submit, doesn't it? <laughs> totally. And interestingly, the way Paul puts it, he isn't even, he's acknowledging the natural selfish tendencies and actually trying to use those to motivate us, right? Because instead of saying, pretend you're not important, he says, remember how important you are and recognize that what you do to her is what you do to yourself, which is an interesting sort of way to say it, right? He says, look, everybody loves their own body. We know that. But she is now part of your body. You are now really one. Which, by the way, is the point he comes to at the end of all this, right? It's like he's leading up to this idea that we're one. Which also fits for the woman. Because if you're laying aside your own rights for the sake of your husband, it helps to understand you guys travel as one. So you're not really giving up. You're just, you're just making the unity work. I think part of what we see is in the same way that love and gratitude and transparency, that this idea of unity in the church was so important to Paul as he talked. And that he said that, that the unity of the church will only happen as we really learn to place other people's needs above our own, and that our reflecting God's glory will only happen as we're united, that as he says all that, he's now saying the same thing about the the husband and wife. That there's a certain reflection of God's glory, which we'll get to in a second, but even just for for the family to work, I think, there's a unity that's more important than your individual rights. And I think that's part of what he's saying for both of them. So I think does everybody agree that's at least broadly? There's a lot we left out. But does everybody agree that that's broadly at least some of what he's saying here? I said that really wishy-washy. It's hard not to agree the way I put it there. Um, <laughs> does everybody agree there might be a little bit, a tiny bit of truth in that? Yeah, so. Um, yeah. <laughs> so here's, here's the harder question then. Why does Paul use different words? If, if we're kind of saying they're similar ideas, and I think they are similar ideas, But Paul doesn't seem to think they're the same idea because he uses a different word for the wife than for the husband. Why? Why does he say submit for the wife and love for the husband? I don't think any of us believe that he doesn't want the wife to love her husband. Right? I don't think it means that. And we know we're all supposed to submit to each other in some ways. So that includes the husband to the wife on some level. But why different words? What's the point? There must be a reason for, there must be something here that is unique to each role. Or at least I think there is. What do you guys think? So so I hear you saying, I hear you. S- Do you guys have a thought? Does everybody agree with that? I think Dick's saying that love is something both sides should be doing, but submit is is definitely one role to the other. Is that what you're saying? Does everybody agree with that? Yeah, that would be my answer, too. Yeah, (laughs) that would be, my answer, too, would be to some extent or mostly, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are supposed to submit to each other again. On There's something about that that's true for all of us because he said that earlier. Here's a couple thoughts. Um, What I heard you saying was that the reason Paul makes the commands he does and says them differently is, because, is not because both aren't true for all of us, but he's commanding the things that we're least likely to do in each case. So for the wife, he could say, love your husband, but she's doing it. So he says, submit, because he knows that's what she's less likely to do. For the husband, you can make an argument as a guy and as a marriage counselor of 20 years, you can make an argument that men, one of the ways they avoid loving their wives and their children is to get more passive, which can look submissive. So in a sense, you don't have to challenge them to back up sometimes. <laughs> it depends on the husband. But again, I could see Paul here where if he just said, you know, submit, and I'm not saying he wanted to. I'm just kind of going here a second with what you said. If he used a different phrase, he's saying love and lay down your life because that's the challenge that men are more likely to miss. Right. Right. I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think you could make an, an argument that he says love in both cases. He's just defining love differently. I think that's a reasonable argument. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree. I think what we're wrestling with is the recognition that our, our response to each other at its heart is one of, is one of deferring. And so that's the same. But we're also wanting to hold on, and I think appropriately so, to the fact that Paul is using different words because there must be something different here. It's not exactly the same. It's not like we differ in the same ways. I think you're right. And submit to authority is a really difficult phrase in our culture. Just just say that to anybody, you know. And if you're the authority and you say submit to me, um, you're you're just about guaranteeing that people won't. Right. That's very true. That's very true. Sure, sure, sure. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And 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 it's and that's not just a recent phenomenon. I mean, I think it's it's messed up in the Old Testament. You know, you you see kings that are like what in the world you know but, I, but, but you're right and, and to go back to something I mentioned last week um, at the end for those who weren't here and for those who were just to remind you I think that's a big part of it you brought you touched on it there at the end the, the idea of authority and responsibility have become disconnected in our culture that's huge that's a problem um, it means that sometimes your boss will give you responsibility to do something and not give you authority to do it and he may not even be able to give you the authority to do it because he may not have the authority to give it to you but he may have the responsibility. I mean, it's just, it's like it's all, you know, it's this long chain of this disconnect between authority and responsibility. It also means that there are people who take authority without taking responsibility. They use authority in a way which just says, I'm going to make you responsible. And, and this is, if you read it this way, then, then you do see that what Paul says is, yes, w- wives, submit to your husbands. But husbands, your authority is one uh, is one that's like, Christ's authority over the church. And did—and this is where we get into some of his flowery language. How did Christ exemplify his authority over the church? He died. <laughs> I mean, that's how. He exemplified his authority by laying down everything for us. And if you think about it in terms of responsibility, that makes sense. He took responsibility for all of our sin, for all of our redemption, for all of our righteousness. And in that sense, he took authority for it all. But that's not how we think of authority. <laughs> We're like, no, authority should be him looking at us and saying, you all blew it, so now you're all punished. <laughs> but in God's economy, the idea of authority and responsibility is very close together. And so he took responsibility for our redemption. And we look, that isn't even sort of right. But scripture actually says it was completely right. It was in God's mind just for him to die for us. Well, that's weird. And I don't think from our perspective we should go too far with that. It's not like God was obligated to do it. But I think there is a sense that God says, yeah, it was the right thing to do because I am, re- I am taking responsibility for you guys. He didn't have to, but he chose to. So I think that's a huge part of what he's saying here. Um, and I think that's something that in our culture is very much not understood. I mean, it's so much not understood, people don't even always realize. Sometimes when I say that, authority and responsibility should go together. Sometimes people go, that is so right. But sometimes people are like, really? <laughs> I mean, they don't even know it anymore. It doesn't even necessarily make sense to them anymore. And you're like, how can, that, how can that be? And the nice thing is Paul shows this all the time too. Whenever he talks about his authority, how does he describe it? I use my authority to do what? To build you up. To serve you. To take responsibility for you. For you. Again, responsibility for your growth. You were going to say something, Don. Cool. Sure. Hmm. I do. They have no idea. <laughs> I think they have no idea. But yeah, <laughs> it does. It does. It does. I agree. No, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and here's the other thing. Okay, so, so he, he talked about the church, and he talked about authority and responsibility. And he said that there's those who are given the responsibility of preparing people to serve. So therefore, they also have authority to do that. And when we talked about that, we saw that. And we even sort of broke it down, and we even said, when does this break down? When does it not happen? And one of the things people said is, well, when the leaders don't take the authority, which was really saying when they don't take the responsibility, <laughs> when they're not doing it, and they're not seeing that. But he also was very clear that every single member of the body of Christ has authority and responsibility towards each other. We all have responsibility and therefore authority to serve one another, to build one another up. Even there, you know, you get churches which are trying, I think, really hard because I think we're all trying to really hard to know what that really looks like because I think there aren't as many examples as we'd like. But I think that... that you see churches which are trying really hard to apply this kind of responsibility to each other, and they sort of do, sometimes, if you're not careful, you end up with the authority without the responsibility. And you end up with a lot of correction and rebuke and reproof, but not a lot of, I'm really here with you and responsible. You know what I mean? Do you see the difference? That's usually when we react badly to that kind of reproof too, is when it's just someone correcting us, but we don't feel like they're really taking responsibility with us. You know what I mean? They're just being authoritative, which is very different. And that's why Paul always talks about speaking the truth in love. If it's not in love, there's not responsibility there. There's just sort of this authoritative, I'm going to speak the truth. (laughs) But are you responsible? Are you taking responsibility for how that truth is going to impact that person? But that's a big deal. That's a big deal. As a teacher, I've learned that. It's one thing to say, I'm going to speak truth. I'm only responsible for speaking the truth. There is nowhere in Scripture, maybe, I'm going to back up, there may be an Old Testament prophet or two where God may have sort of said that. But most of the time, even with the prophets, it never says your responsibility is simply to speak the truth. It tends to say your responsibility is to communicate the truth, to, to make sure that people receive the truth. Solomon says a wise man makes truth acceptable. I know people who don't worry about making it acceptable. <laughs> They're just like, here it is, take it or leave it. But that's not taking responsibility. That's just taking authority, right? Taking responsibility is to say, how can I do this in a way that you will hear? And isn't that weird for me to take responsibility for your hearing? And I understand there's limits to all this, but, but that's there. It is there. We're supposed to do that. And same thing, just one-on-one with each other. I can't just correct you. I have to be, if I'm going to correct you, I have to be willing to be responsible and invest in your life. And if we took that approach, well, one of two things would happen. If we, we, I guess you can err on either side. We could say, I'm not willing to invest in people's lives, so I'm just not going to ever correct anybody. <laughs> and then you would have nothing. <laughs> or you can say, I don't want to invest in people's lives, so I'm just going to correct everybody. You still have nothing, but then people don't like you. Or you can say, every time I feel the need to correct someone, I'm going to ask myself, am I in a position of authority and responsibility with them, or am I not? Sometimes I am, and sometimes I'm not. And if I am, am I really willing to take that responsibility seriously? If I am, it means more than just speaking to them, right? That would make such a difference? (laughs) Yeah. Totally different and much harder. And, And think about what that means. That means you're submitting to that alcoholic, which is like, blow your mind, kind of why would I do that? Because that's what Paul did that's what Jesus did. That's what we're called to do. That's crazy. But that is totally leadership. I agree. I agree. And that's, that's what he's calling. So in the family, it's the same. So we'll go. So he said that in the church. Now he's saying that between husband and wife, but I want to remind you of something because again, culturally, this is a little bit different. In the vast majority of cases, we're talking 90%, 98% in every case where it was possible, In his culture, when you had a husband and wife, what did you also have within a short period of time? Children, right. In other words, the idea of husband and wife, when possible, I'm not saying we we know lots of scriptural stories of people who couldn't have children as well, but when it was possible, which is not the same today. Today, it could be possible and not happen, right? So when it was possible, you knew there was this close connection between husband and wife and family. So when he's talking about this hierarchy between husband and wife, you know that he's saying it partly in the same way he did with the church because it's not about just the husband and wife. It's about a little micro-community and the unity of that family. And, you know, some of the best marriage books I've ever read, whether they're secular or Christian, all tend to make this same point, that it is better as a husband and wife to be united and let your kids see that you have a united front. It's better to be united and wrong than divided and right. Right? <laughs> And it's so often true. Because that affects the whole family. Because that gives the kids a certain sense of security and stability and they know which direction to go. Obviously, and, and you know, again, all things have limits, you know. If you're united in criminal activities, then that's just Bonnie and Clyde, that doesn't count. But but, you know, within within sort of normal framework. And that's why, so here he even goes right on from there. But before we go on to the to the kids a little bit, let's look at where else he goes because to me, again, once we've kind of established a little bit where Paul's going that it's about this attitude of deferring his example of Jesus. And when he starts talking about the church, I think there's two things going on. One is he is showing us not by parallel, but by contrast, because Jesus did this so much more fully than we ever can with our wives and with our husbands. He's showing us a, 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 he's showing us a similarity by contrast, but he's also carried away. But Ephesians is a book where Paul gets caught up in these rapturous extremely high pictures. And remember all along from beginning chapter one, it's all been about how God has this amazing plan to glorify himself by revealing how gracious he is to us, which is just kind of an amazing picture all in all. And so, a lot, so when he talked about the church, he talked about how this is going to bring glory to God in the heavenly realms and everywhere. And he talked about the church you know, functioning properly and how that's just going to bring glory to God and glory to Jesus everywhere. And now he talks about the family and he goes to the same place. He's like, just by your doing this, it's an amazing reflection of the gospel itself. That's how this runs through everything. And that's what he says. He says, so again, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So that's what Jesus did in the same way, but not to the same degree (laughs) and not with the same outcome. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Jesus loved us as his own body. He laid aside his right to be God, to take on the form of man. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. And then he says, just as Christ does the church and reminds us that, in fact, we are members of his body. That's the metaphor that Paul's been using throughout Ephesians. So therefore, Christ cares for us as he would his own body. Kind of an amazing thought. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he quotes Genesis. He says, this is what the marriage is like. You're one, therefore you're... But then he says, but wait, I'm not just talking about man and wife anymore. I'm talking about the church. And this connects back to what he said. What was the mystery of the gospel? It was the nations becoming one under Jesus, right? It was the Gentiles and the Jews coming together. So he's saying, look, look at this. I'm talking about Christ in the church. And they're like, I thought you were talking about husband and wife. And he's like, well, yeah, that too. So you ought to do that too. But that's part of this whole book is that look at this structure. Look at the hierarchy. Look at the things in place. Look at the unity. Look at the deference to one another. Look at the love and the gratitude and the transparency and recognize that all of this is part of that incredible, amazing plan called the gospel. And he's showing us even even down to to the small level of the family is what it is. So that's that's why he kind of goes here. Each of you, and then however he's like, oh yeah. Then each of you should love your wife as you love yourself, and the wife must respect her husband. So there you go. <laughs> I will say one more point about the, the the roles, and this is just this is scriptural, but it's also experiential. And maybe I see it more clearly because I've seen it experientially, just over the years as I've talked to so many couples. There's a verse in Proverbs. I think that the, the idea of respect and the idea of love. I think it's not only a challenge. In other words, Don, you pointed out that it might be because it's hard for the wife to do it, so, so Paul's challenging that, and it's hard for the husband to do it this way, so Paul challenges that. And I think that's true, but I think it's even more than that. I think it's that, you know, we, we have all these books today. There's the love languages, which talks about how we don't all see love the same. And it's an interesting experiment. Go to your friends, the people that you really regard friends, and ask them one day, what to you defines friendship? And the interesting thing is they will all give you different answers. You'll say, how did I manage to be friends with all these people? Because I didn't know there were so many different variables. of what You know, really, seriously, it'll come down to kind of love language things. Some people will say, a friend is someone who comes to my house, hangs out with me and doesn't do anything and doesn't, doesn't complain about my house. You know, that's a friend. Or a friend is somebody who is there when I'm in need and they really help me get things accomplished and they put their, you know, shoulder to shoulder we do things together. Or they might say, you know, a friend is someone who knows the right thing to say at the right time. And you're, you're getting all these things, you know, words of encouragement or service or, or gifts of love. It, you'll see people define friendship differently. I tend to define friendship in terms of loyalty. This has good and bad. It means whenever someone left the church, it was easy for me to think, I guess they don't like me anymore, you know? <laughs> because that's how I tended to define friendship. Well, tended. I still do. It's how I tend to define friendship. I've hopefully learned how to not always take everything quite as personally. But but I think there's truth to that, that. That that's how I see it. So if you ask me, what's a friend? Well, a friend of somebody is somebody who's still there. Maybe you don't even talk for three years, but when you're back, when you meet each other after three years, you're right there. You know, you just you know, you're you're together and you know it. And so that's, but that's me, and it's different. So here's what's interesting. I think that in this whole husband-wife thing, Paul is not only giving challenges, but he's also acknowledging that as a as a unit, the genders see love differently. And men tend to see love in terms of respect, in terms of not, not, not putting me down and trusting me and believing in me. That's how men tend to see love. And trust me, when, when men have a wife like that, they adore that wife. They just do. They feel safe and they adore. Women tend to see it in terms of nurturing and cherishing and, and giving up your life for me. <laughs> and I, so there's a difference in it. And just a, a couple of uh, uh, things. There's a. It's fascinating to me. There's all those proverbs which say that better to live in the corner of a house than with a cantankerous woman. And I don't think those verses tell us so much about the woman. I think they tell us about the man. What they tell us about men is that when they feel challenged, what they tend to do is simply get distance. They simply tend to move to the corner of the house. And as I've seen couples over all the years, that's exactly what they do. They don't leave, but they leave. You know, they're still there. They may even still be kind, but they get distant. They stop engaging with their wife. They get passive or they get angry, but they stop engaging. They just back up to the corner of the house. And, and I think that's, that's the way a man tends to react when he doesn't feel that kind of respect or that kind of submission. What's interesting about that is there's also the Psalm, which says there's four things, three things, it's a Hebrew way to put it, three things the world can't tolerate, four things under which the world cannot stand up, can't bear it. So four unbearable things. And one of them is an unloved woman who's married or a married woman who's unloved. It means the same thing, however you translate it. <laughs> a married woman who's unloved is unbearable. And I, I think that's true. When a woman feels unloved by her husband, she doesn't get distance. It's just unbearable can't survive it. She can't tolerate it. And so what happens is, I think, that you get this, this, this um, vicious cycle where the, the if, if the, and it doesn't matter where it starts, because I'm not going to blame anybody. It could start anywhere, okay? But just once you're in the cycle where, let's say, the husband has disengaged, and he just has not, he's, he's never shown really good love to his wife. What does she do? It's unbearable, so she, she moves in, And she talks, and she complains, and she says, I can't take this. I need more. And when the husband hears that, what does he do? He moves to the corner of the house. And when he moves to the corner of the house, what does she do? She pursues him there. And when she pursues him there, what does he do? He moves out to the desert. That's the other proverb, right? Better to live in the desert. And when she does that, she moves forward. So you have this vicious cycle where because they're each feeling unloved, they're doing exactly the opposite of what this says. Because it's counterintuitive. Because to do what this says requires for both spouses, really, that they do what feels like death to them, that they lay down their life. Because for the woman, if you say to her, okay, what you need to do is you need to back off. She says, back off. He'll have everything he wants. He'll have no motivation to come pursue me. It will be death. Our marriage will die. If you say to the guy, you need to engage with your wife. You need to go back in. You need to love her. He says, I try. Nothing I do is good enough. Everything I do gets criticized. If I go and approach her to love her, I die she kills me. That is how it feels. And so instead it goes this way. But Paul is saying it needs to go this way, or this way, however you want to look at it. But it needs to go the other way. <laughs> and once it does, that can't, not once, if you're consistent, that can become a benevolent cycle, and go the other direction. And in marriages where those habits are started from the beginning, you earn enough change that it doesn't, you know, that when, you're, when your wife complains, you don't immediately run to the corner of the roof, you know. And when the husband is passive, the wife doesn't immediately decide he doesn't love her. But you got to earn that change first. You know, you got to get there. So I think that's, that's what he So my point is, I think he gives the roles differently because he knows, because God knows what is needed for each person. It has more to do with the needs. And I, I think whether you see it as a challenge because it's what the wife and the husband have a hard time with, or whether you see it as because it's based upon what the needs of each have, neither one of those says it's based upon the superiority or inferiority of either gender. And I think that's really important to understand. It's not because men are smarter. It's not because men are more spiritual. Those are things that people say with a straight face in commentaries all the time. And it's a problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When I do marriage counseling, I use exactly that language. And when I do, they go, yeah it really does you know they, they totally get it they're like yeah that, you're right because that's what I'll say I'll say look I, and, I, and I usually I, and I, I try to play it even handed although to be honest I tend to put more, more on the husband because of the whole authority responsibility but, but I do try to play it fairly even handed but I tell them both look one of you has to die preferably both of you but until one of you is willing it's not going to change that's hard. That is such a hard thing to say to somebody. You know. But it's so true. And, and it, it, when it's really bad, if they don't see it that way, it'll never change. And you know that movie Fireproof and that big kind of movement, that's all that said. That's, that's all that whole thing was about, was, was laying down your life. For your sp- and that took the, put the onus on the husband, which I think is fine. There may be some practical reasons that also make sense, besides the authority responsibility. Um, but either way, I've seen both happen. I've seen wives who have decided to, who were willing to die, and were willing to do everything they could to submit to a husband that did not, to respect a husband that was really hard to respect. And I've seen things change. And I've seen husbands engage with wives, and I've seen things change. The other thing is Paul gives no guarantees, right? Does he say, husbands, love your wives, and I guarantee you that your wife will submit to you? He doesn't say that. He doesn't. Does he say, wives, submit to your husbands, and I guarantee you they will nurture and cherish you? He doesn't. You certainly provide a safe place for them to do it when you do that. But you don't guarantee it. That's a hard message to do. I I say that in counseling too. I say, you have to do it. I can't guarantee you the other person will respond. (laughs) It's just you can't do it for that reason. Um, It's hard. But you do provide a safe space. You at least are providing the opportunity for it to happen. Where otherwise, I can almost guarantee it won't happen. Um, So that's hard. And that's why I much prefer the potential in premarital counseling to the really difficult work of post tragic marital counseling. <laughs> um, problem is, in premarital counseling, nobody's listening because they don't really think it's ever going to be an issue. <laughs> right? I mean, they're like, we love each other. We're always going to love each other. I'm like, stop. You're going to hate each other tomorrow. Now just listen to me. Uh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, what's that? No, no, I was being, I was being facetious and overly cynical. I actually think premarital counseling is beneficial. I know it was for me and my wife, Um, but yeah, I yeah, it's a whole other story. I think that it would be great to. I think I just never. You can't. It's really hard to enforce it after people are married. It's hard to get them to come back until they're desperate. But what I think, well, what we really need is people in churches where they're hanging out with good marriages. I mean, that's the best. Because then you have that whole thing just kind of flowing. That's really what makes it work. Failing that, and sometimes that isn't there. I, I think it'd be great if you could do premarital counseling, and as part of the condition, but like I say, this is impossible to enforce, As part of the condition of premarital counseling, you say, in one year, we're going to meet again together for three weeks, and then six months after that, we're going to meet again for another because I think at that point you'd hit some things. that, they, And you could even do the exact same counseling you did before they got married. And it would sound different. <laughs> What's that? Sure, sure. And and go back to that community that Paul's talking about of love and gratitude and transparency. If you hung out with couples who had love and gratitude and transparency, so it, you didn't, you know, they weren't pretending, didn't think everything was perfect, but you did see there was gratitude there, you did see there was love there, and you could see how they worked through the things that weren't good. What, what kind of difference would that make? That uh, would be huge, <laughs> yeah. And not only in marriages, but in everything. So I think Paul... Uh, Sometimes I say really stupid stuff because it's obvious. I was going to say, I think Paul's on to something. But I think that, that, yeah, I mean, it's so, when you, when you start looking at that, you realize, yeah, this is, this is kind of an amazing thing, what this really would do and does do. I, I don't want to make it sound like there aren't churches doing this. There are. I just, I just want us to be looking for that, pushing for that, working towards that. So um, Okay. Uh, so then he goes on. Chapter 6. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. A um, couple of interesting things. Number one is, uh, again, speaking practically. Um, is Paul expecting children to hear this? Of course. Why would he say it otherwise, right? So he's speaking to children that are in the community when this is being read, right? Right? who are old enough to understand, fair enough. That's a lot though, because everybody would have been in the community. I mean, that's gonna go pretty far down. It's not gonna go, you know, the two year old. He's not speaking to the two year old, (laughs) you know. He's speaking to those who can hear this and actually reflect and make a decision to obey or not and actually think about what he's saying. And he says it's the first commandment with a promise. It's not the first commandment, we know that. It's not the first in terms of order and it's not the first in terms of importance. But it's the first one that comes with a promise. And I think that he would, if we pressed him on it, I think he would acknowledge that by promise here, he means principle. He's not saying it's a guarantee in every case, right? Because surely there are children who have obeyed their parents and died early. <laughs> I don't think he's... But he is saying there's a principle here that if you obey your parents, it's going to go better. And you know what? That is a spiritual principle, but it's also just an eminently practical principle, right? Right? Kids who listen to their parents and the wisdom that their parents have from the experience of the life they've had get into less trouble. I think that's really kind of what it's about. You know, it's just going to happen that way. Your parents are not stupid. You know, they actually have some some understanding about how things work. You know, listen to what they say, and it will go well with you, um, and you'll likely to live longer. But what's that? Yeah. I mean, there are really obvious practical things to that. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Even, even down to things like today, you know, if I could, I can, you can, we can all picture the experience, you know, of the, of the parents who are telling their children not to have premarital sex and the children are thinking, everybody's doing that this day, this is really old-fashioned, but not realizing that there's a whole lot of things that can make your life go a lot less well. Right? If you're casual. Just not really understanding that. But if they just listen to their parents instead of to the culture around them, it'll go better for them. It'll go better for them. I was a good kid for lots of really bad reasons. So I did a lot of what my parents told me for really stupid reasons. Not because I was noble and all that. But it still protected me from an awful lot of stuff. (laughs) I mean, it just did. It, It helped me out. There's things I look back on. I'm so grateful I had no idea that it was as important as it was. But now I look back and go, I'm so glad I never got into that. Just because my mom said, don't think that's a good idea. And I'm like, wow. I'm so glad I was willing to, for whatever reasons, (laughs) willing to listen to her, you know. All right. So. Then he goes on, though. So in the same way with husbands and wives, there was a give and take of of sort of the, the submission and the responsibility authority. He does the same thing here. He says, children. Take responsibility, submit, obey. Then he says, fathers, in your authority, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is really important to me that he uses the word training and instruction because this is that whole responsibility, authority thing we talked about. Instruction can be what we sometimes think of as authority. Do this, do that, do the other. Training is involvement. Training is walking with you. Um Yes? We'll, we'll, we're going we're gonna to come back to it. that We're going to go backwards to it. So hang in there. Yep, yep. So training and instruction. So um, um, I really like, uh, since you brought up Apple, you know, there's, actually I see both sides. And we can cut this out of the thing. Um, but there are times that Apple says, go do this and kind of throws you out there. And you're just kind of like, I have no idea how to do what they just told me to do. <laughs> so you figure it out on your own. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. But there's a lot of times that they really train you. And I really like that. The first uh, five, four to five weeks that your work at Apple is all training. It's all different kinds of training. And, they, and the last couple weeks of it is very much hands-on, mentor, someone's there with you, walking you through it. So it is much more than instruction. They commit the, the money and the time to do that. And it's one of the best things they do. Because it produces people who really understand what customer service means because they haven't just been told it. They've been walked through it. And so he's saying to the fathers, don't just give instructions. Don't just tell your children, do this, do that, do the other, do that, but train them. Because it exasperates or frustrates your children. It, it, it gives them high expectations that you have of them without equipping them to do it is what I think exasperating me here means. When you simply say to them, here's what you should do, but you don't train them how to do it. You don't walk them through that. And that's what exasperate is, where they know they have all this responsibility, but they don't really have the authority because they haven't really been trained in it. They don't really know how to do it yet. And I think that's what he's saying. Because it's easy to be the father who's uninvolved and just says, this is, these are the things you should do. It's much harder to actually get in there with the child and, and help them learn it. Because sometimes to get in there with the child is to get messy, and sometimes to get in there with the child is to go over stuff. Sometimes you don't want to. You, you went through that when you were a kid. You don't want to go through it again with them. You know, it's like, why, why do I have to go through this with you? And sometimes it reveals what you yourself never learned, <laughs> right? You're training them in the Lord and you realize, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to do that. And that happens. That happens because our fathers didn't always train us. And again, sometimes they didn't know. <laughs> so sometimes we have to figure it out. But much better to, to get in there and mess up with your kid trying to do that than to simply say, you go figure it out. Um, so I think that's what exasperate means. It means being really having these kind of high expectations but not really taking responsibility to train them towards those high expectations. Slaves. So it's children obey. Fathers don't expect obedience without training. And then we're going to talk about the marketplace. Everybody does this. And it's, it's kind of cheap, but it makes a whole lot of sense. And it's the only way to really deal with this. He's gonna talk about slaves and masters. We just don't have slaves and masters, (laughs) okay? I think he meant slaves and masters because that's the culture they were in. And when you really understand he meant slaves and masters, it's kind of shocking a little bit what he says. Now, I really love the book of Philemon, which is one that a lot of us skip over because it rounds out some of what we're gonna hear here and, and helps us understand what Paul's sort of attitude about slavery was, rather than just the commands, okay? Because some people use what we're about to read to say, see, Paul was in favor of slavery. He's actually clearly not. Clearly not, from a number of things he says. But it's the culture we're in. You, know? <laughs> you, you, you deal with where you are. Um, and so he does. Today, it does apply to a degree to the marketplace, but it's not, exa- it's not a perfect correlation. And I'm not sure it ever will be. Um, because we're not slaves. Because we can leave. Because we have the option. Because if we don't want to submit to our boss, because if they ask us to do something really terrible in our minds, we can walk away. They didn't actually have that option, which when we get to find Amen, you'll kind of see one who tried. (laughs) It's like, I'm going to run away. Okay. Uh, So he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. This is tough for a slave because he's not only saying just do what they ask you. He's saying throw your heart into it, which is kind of rough, honestly. And so when we as employees have a hard time with it, I just think remembering that he wasn't actually writing to voluntary employees is even stronger. You just realize, wow, you know, I have the option here. I chose on one level to be here. understand. We have to work. I totally get that. Um, I wouldn't work at Apple if I didn't have to. But as I work there, it's really important for me to remember, okay, sometimes they ask me to do stuff and I think, that's just, that's not smart. It doesn't make sense. And I don't want to do it that way. And Paul says, is that how you would respond to the Lord? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Okay. Serve them the way you would serve the Lord. And for me, it not only means my, it, even more so, because my, my bosses at Apple are pretty reasonable, to be perfectly honest. But it, for me, it means the customer a lot of times, because that's who my boss is, right? When I'm training a customer, they're my boss. And sometimes they're asking for really stupid stuff. And I'm just like, really? And so, yeah, we're definitely gonna cut this out of the teaching. Um, but no, but for me to really think, okay, if I were, you know, if, if the Lord said to me, I want you, you know, this is, um, you know, this is, this is my earthly aunt. This is Mary's sister, you know, and I want you to take care of her for me. How would I treat that person? You know, oh, well, that's a little different. You know, I won't put Jesus in that place because I don't think I have anything to teach him, but, you know, someone else. Anyway, you were going to say something. Yeah. Right, And you're not controlled. You're no longer having to do what they tell you to do. You're choosing to do it for the Lord, which is totally different. There absolutely is. There absolutely is. And that is part of what he's telling them. He's telling them, look, your master may not reward you. That's implicit in here. right? Your master may never see it. He may not reward you. And he may never appreciate it. And he may not be a guy you really want to work for. But he is. He's saying, but you have choice. And again, not, not to stretch it too far. I don't think he was naive about it. But he's saying, you have a choice. You can choose to serve the Lord. And he sees it, and he'll reward you. And by the way, you know, this little statement, the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or free, is also a very encouraging reminder to the slave that God is also watching the free man, right? Your, your master is also being judged by God. <laughs> so if they're doing things that are really terrible, God sees that too he sees that you, all right? Um, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he was both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. That's really important for the masters to understand. Again, it's that whole, here is here's another authority responsibility thing, but you masters need to understand you are not superior. You are not superior and not closer to God. What's fascinating about this whole passage that we sometimes sort of gloss over just like with the children, he was assuming that there would be children in the community when this was being read who would hear it. That means there are masters and slaves attending the same church. Which is weird, but, but fascinating. And kind of tells you that there have been some changes already. I mean, if the masters are allowing their slaves to attend the fellowship with them, now maybe they're bringing them because they want them to do something for them. I don't know. But maybe they're bringing them because that's the kind of relationship God's unfolding with people. It shows there's some things that are happening. Now, Slaves and masters, by the way, in the Greek culture and, and, and what's going on here are not, are not slaves and masters as they were in our culture. There's, there is a difference already. There's a, sometimes it's a bond servant, so sometimes it was almost a voluntary thing, sort of. Sometimes it was not that, but there were some rules established by God. So if you were a good Jew, you were already being fairly um, gentle, fairly, fairly gentle with your slaves, but we know how, how well that, you know, people obeyed those laws with their wives, let alone their slaves. So it's, it's iffy. But I just think it's interesting that he's, he's speaking to a community where he expects there will be slaves and masters both there. And I think that already shows you that there's, there's been some shifting because the slaves and masters are in a church where they're being taught they're on equal footing. And the masters are there to hear that too. So it leads to things like Onesimus, which we're going to read about later it leads to sort of Onesimus thinking, I'm free, why should I stay here and running off? And then Paul having to make this difficult decision of, do I send him back? Or do I help him gain his freedom? Which is really a tough decision for Paul. And we'll read about that when we get there. And the gentleness with which Paul approaches that is pretty interesting. So, in the marketplace, says, the Lord you serve. Again, authority is responsibility, not superiority. And then he says, finally, in conclusion, says Paul, wrapping up the whole sermon. So, here we are, the things he's talking about the church, he's talking about authority, he's talking about responsibility, he's talking about in the church how we ought to work in that community, he talks about it the family, he talks about it in the marketplace, and now he brings the microcosm down to you. He's going to say, so now you, in your life, what does it look like for you? You're in community, he never pulls us out of that, but as you're in community, for you then, how should you live? What does it look like for you? What are the things that, that, what is your responsibility in your own life? (laughs) Right? What's your authority in your own life? Because, yes, there are those whose responsibility and authority is to equip and build you to serve. And, yes, there are those in the community whose authority and responsibility is to serve you. And, yes, there are those in your family whose authority and responsibility is to take responsibility for your growth. But there's also you. You take authority and responsibility for your growth as well. So, even though it's a much less individualistic culture than ours, and community is hugely important in Scripture, there is still an understanding that there's not a lack of responsibility for ourselves. Does that make sense? At some point, we come down to that. And this is what he says. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. So the first thing is in your responsibility for your own life, who's who's really responsible for your growth? It's actually not you. <laughs> it's the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Who's responsible for your strength? The Lord. Who's responsible for for... The power, his mighty power. Remember, we pulled this chapter out, but remember all the way through Ephesians how much Paul talked about power, how big a deal power was, and what kind of power it is, and how he just talked about this power in huge ways. This is the same power that had this plan from before the creation of the universe that was going to go through the whole gospel. This is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the same power that has redeemed mankind. This is the same power that's going to bring all things under the head of Jesus. That's the power you're to stand in. Your responsibility is to submit to that power. So that's where he starts. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Your biggest thing as you walk through this and your love and your gratitude and your transparency is to, is, to rec- is to take responsibility to not fall prey to the devil's lies. Trust God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you, to quote James. That's your biggest responsibility. So there's this armor. So all the armor he's about to describe has direct connection back to resisting the devil's lies, to resisting the devil's deceptions and schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's something that we kind of quote, but it's a huge statement. And in light of everything he's talked about in Ephesians, it's a really important statement because remember what the church is doing It's revealing the glory of God to the authorities in the heavenly realms. So, of course, it's the evil forces in the heavenly realms that want to keep us from doing that. That's where our struggle is. Every time, husband, that you don't love your wife and lay your life down for her, that is where the spiritual battle is engaged. You may think there's something more important than that, but the heavenly forces are smart enough to know that's where it happens. Because that's where the glory of God and the body of Christ is reflected or not. Every time, church that you are disunited, that you don't treat one another with love, that you're not grateful, and that you're not transparent, that's where the spiritual battle is taking place. It's in the the really rudimentary, mundane things of life. That's where the spiritual battle is. Every time you lay down your life, every time you defer to someone else, every time you do something the world doesn't understand because you love somebody else, you're winning the spiritual battle. You're standing up. Can you do that on your own? Can you be different than the world? No, you've got to stand strong in the Lord's mighty power because there are spiritual forces who want to not let you do that. <laughs> but it's not about big speeches, and huge rallies, and amazing works of, of the miraculous. If God chooses to do those things, great. But it's more often in that, are you building one another up in the community? Are you loving each other? Are you tr- engaging with responsibility and authority. Huge, amazing what he says. So he says, remember when you do that, just like you said, there's freedom. You know, My struggle is not just having to work for this really stupid boss. (laughs) My struggle is, can I serve the Lord at a moment when I don't see the Lord? And if I can, I'm winning the spiritual battle. That's awesome, okay? Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So the devil is constantly attacking. It's not like he takes a break. He's going to keep attacking. So you've got to be strong in the might of the Lord and you've got to stand firm in the armor so that when the day of evil comes, and I think it's really important to understand that he is not talking about some far-flung moment of judgment here. He's saying the day of evil is every day. There will be that moment that will come, that spiritual force, that temptation, that spiritual battle will hit. When it hits, not if it hits. When it hits, are you already in the armor? Or do you wait to try to throw on the armor at that moment? Right? <laughs> oh, I haven't been praying and I haven't been trusting God. I better do it now. If you haven't been trusting God, you're not going to start doing it when the devil starts throwing exceptions at you. Right? That's not going to be the moment you're suddenly going to go, oh, yeah, now I remember. I mean, you might because God can use that, but that's, that's not the point. Put on the armor of God now so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. He said, like, stand like eight times already. Okay, that's an exaggeration. I think it's four. But he sa- he, that's the point. The point is stand. Just just stand. Don't be crushed by the devil. How do you do it? Where do you stand? In the mighty power of the Lord. And you put on the armor. So what's the armor? What is this armor that protects us from the devil's schemes? And here again, it's nice, and I thought about it, and we could kind of do it. Gosh, these are so tiny. All this requires power. This is where the battle occurs. All battles are spiritual. Good. I said all that. It's just for me, not for you, I guess, because those are tiny. Okay, Um, you can go through all of these and there's all sorts of nice analogies and metaphors you can make. We're not going to go through all that because again, I want for us for a moment to remember that Paul wasn't anticipating they were going to write down every one of these articles of clothing and dissect what they all mean. He was just kind of waxing eloquent under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yes, but he's kind of waxing eloquent as he's just thinking through what, what people would see as armor. And he's just kind of connecting it to what it means to stand firm in the devil's schemes. So I'm not sure that everything has sort of a unique point. I don't think it's an allegory. I don't think it's a one-to-one correlation necessarily. I think it's just sort of a picture, and all these things are very relevant. Now, that's not to say you can't go through and find some really interesting correlations, and, and another day we might do that. Well, we probably won't. Maybe six years when we get back here again. But, um, but for now, I just really just want to kind of see them broadly Um, and see how in a lot of ways to me they all come back to the same thing which is standing firm against the devil's schemes against the devil's lies against the devil's deceptions they all come back to truth and faith that's what you're going to see they all come back to truth and faith and he starts he says stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist okay so you've got the belt of truth so that kind of holds everything together right buckled around your waist Uh, with the breastplate sorry I can't read there we go with the breastplate of righteousness in place, so your breastplate protects your heart, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So from the belt to the covering of your, your, your trunk and your heart to your feet ready to move, although what we're supposed to do is stand, but that's all right. With your feet ready to move, it's all about the gospel, right? Our righteousness, our breastplate of righteousness, where does our righteousness come from? From the Lord. He's been very clear about that. This is not a breastplate of self-righteousness. That's something very different. And that crumbles easily. In fact, that sort of embraces the devil's arrows. <laughs> it's like, get me. Um, so, but this is the breastplate of righteousness. We are covered by Jesus. We are protected by Jesus. Um, again, could make the argument, covers the heart. We talked about Jesus has provided the new heart for us, right? So the, the righteousness, the belt of truth holds it all together, holds everything in place so we are ready to move. And the gospel of peace, we're at peace with God and peace with each other, because that's part of what he's talked about. The gospel brings peace. It brings unity to one another. Again, comes back to that idea. What is it? What is the armor of God? It's the gospel. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That makes sense. That's a very direct defense, right? That if the evil one fights through deception, then faith is what's going to hold that back. I think it's relevant, although I don't know that Paul's making this point specifically here. It's relevant to point out that they lived at a time when the Roman army had successfully mastered the art of multiple shields, making them basically the first tank. There are uh, war historians who say the Romans really had the first tank, and it was made of human beings and shields. And they would hold shields completely around them, front, back, side, top. They had maneuvers you know they were like the tortoise or something I think was even one of them that doesn't sound very fierce but when you think about it uh, when you think about a tortoise with his shell you know it's a little hard to kind of penetrate and I think they actually used that they probably thought the tortoise was amazing just like Benjamin Franklin thought the turkey was awesome so so they um, but they're, they would just roll over people I mean at that time that was kind of the strongest thing altogether so maybe Paul has that in mind it's certainly relevant whether he did or not that our shields of faith work best when we stand together Paul would certainly agree with that. He certainly said that over and over. We have responsibility for each other in that too. Uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil. And I like that. It's not just def- holding it back, but it's actually extinguishing. It's like taking out the, 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 the danger altogether. Take the helmet of salvation. So you're protecting your head. Salvation from God. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The only offensive weapon in this whole thing is, is the word of God. It's the sword of the spirit. That's how you sort of fight back. When the devil throws those deceptions at you, how do you fight back? You you know the word of God. You stand firm in the word. It's interesting to see that this is is very much what Jesus did in in the desert, right? Devil threw things at him, some of which were scripture, by the way. And Jesus threw scripture back in his hands. He like pulled out the sword and went, and the devil's like, darn, I'll try again. You know, and that's what he used. And so, To me, it's pretty clear. This is all about trusting God, believing God, relying on the gospel, relying on the salvation he brings, the righteousness he brings, using the word of God to defend and to attack back and, and the shield of faith, to believe God instead of the devil. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. How often should you pray? On all occasions. With what kinds of prayers? All kinds of prayer, All the prayers. That's right. All the things. You should pray with all the prayers and requests. I like that. I just think Paul, I, I love the fact that Paul makes it really simple here. You know, he's just like, pray whenever for whatever. That's <laughs> kind of what he says. I just like that because I have a tendency to complicate prayer. I don't know why. But Paul's not like, here's how you pray. Here's what you do. Do it this way. Follow these steps. Make sure you do. He's just like, pray whenever for whatever. It's almost like he's saying, I don't even really care what you pray about it. Just be praying. Just be praying. That's kind of the thing, right? And he goes on and he says, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Oh, I love this. Uh, listen to this for a second. Listen to this kind of this link and then I'll, I'll tell you why this is cool to me. It says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I want you to notice in that little statement about prayer, he actually brought in all three of those things we talked about. Love, gratitude, and transparency. Because first he says, just pray. Then he says, pray for who? Other people. (laughs) Don't just think about your own needs, but pray for all the saints, right? And then he says, I mean, I think gratitude is implicit. He doesn't actually say here, but he does elsewhere about gratitude. But, the, but then he says what? Pray also for me. And then he's transparent. It is clear in this passage that he, is, he knows fear. Right? Isn't that, to me it is. Why would you ask people to pray that he wouldn't be afraid? You know, Pray that I will declare it fearlessly. Pray that I should do what I should. Why, why ask people to do that? Because you're acknowledging. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I get afraid. Here I am in prison. I've come across as, as really faithful and strong. And, but I want you to know I need you to pray for me. Because sometimes I'm afraid. So even just as he talks about pray praying, he says pray with love. Pray with gratitude. Pray with transparency. I think it's kind of cool. That he kind of even emulated that there at the end. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything. So why, why does he say that? Yep, that, that means he's bringing them the letter, right? Someone's got to be bringing him the letter. Paul's in prison. <laughs> so he says, hey, if you have any questions about me, and even it may refer to that. Even when he says, pray for me, and then he says, the guy bringing the letter will tell you everything. Maybe he means he has more details. He can tell you how hard it's been, but I'm not going to put that in the letter. But he's going to tell you. He knows. He's seen. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Maybe he's not doing great right at the moment. You know? But he's not going to put them the letter. He's just going to let just tell them that. He'll let you know how I am. And some of it, I'm sure, is Paul's great. Paul. But some of it is, yeah, boy, they, you know, they, uh, they're just crazy. One day they tell him he's going to get to see Caesar, and the next day they tell him he's going to die. You know? And sometimes he just doesn't know what to do. Yeah, who knows? You know, who knows? I am sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Obviously, that the, the, there's. A lot there to say that Paul is, isn't sending him just with bad news. You know, I'm doing terrible, but he's going to encourage you as well. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. It's for Paul's closings. It's one of the most succinct. It's kind of like he's done. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like I have said so much, big stuff. How could I, how can I wrap it up? You know, just grace, love faith, peace. Good night. (laughs) That's it. You know, anything else more personal, Tychicus will give. But but just chew on this. You've got a lot to chew on. You know, here is everything I've told you. Stand firm. Fight that spiritual fight. And that's where we are. And it's 8.30, but just to kind of sum it up, this is all very applicable to us. You know, the spiritual battles you fight every day, they're fought in the midst of life. They're not fought around the edges of life. Sometimes we're so busy looking for the big things we can do that we're missing the spiritual battles right in front of us. Love your wife. Respect your husband. Train your kids. Obey your parents. Submit to authorities. Work as if you work to the Lord. Love one another. Be grateful and be transparent. And that's where the spiritual battles is fought. What's exciting to me about all that is we know it. We can see it. We can see it, can't we? Can't we see that that is the spiritual battle? We know it is. That makes you really important. And it makes what we do really important. Which again, leads you back to the armor. Then you go, if you start to feel overwhelmed, you say, okay, in the Lord's power, in His mighty strength, I just got to trust God. Trust in His salvation. Trust in this amazing plan, this huge gospel that has such power is what runs through me at these moments. Be willing to die. For others. To defer. Tough stuff but it's where the spiritual battle's fought. And he gives us this grand plan and this glorious plan. And for those of you who weren't here at the beginning of Ephesians, go back and read those first two or three chapters because it's, it's just kind of an amazing unfolding of what the gospel is about, all right? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had today to just praise you and learn from you. Thank you for the book of Ephesians, how amazing it is. Thank you that the spiritual battle is fought every day in these little things we do. Thank you that your grace covers where we mess up, Lord. Thank you that your your righteousness is secure upon our heart, Lord, that that breastplate cannot fall. Thank you for that. Just enable us, Lord, to stand firm. And after we've done everything, just to stand. Just to stand and trust you, Lord, that your armor, that your salvation, that your righteousness, that your helmet, that your glory, that your word, that, 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 that as we just stand in faith, that that's enough. That's enough. And even our faith, Lord, we need you. We need your mighty power. We need your strength. Some days, Lord, I just don't have the faith. I need the faith of my brothers and sisters to, to keep me pumped up, to keep me going, to keep me faithful. Some days, I just need your grace and your reminder. Thank you for your faith. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word and your scripture. These things pray in your son's name. Amen. Um, next week, Colossians. You bet. In some ways, Colossians is similar to Ephesians, but you'll see that his main thrust Um, And it's shorter, but you'll see that his main thrust at the very beginning is different. In Ephesians, he wanted to talk about the glory of the church and why it's so important. In Colossians, he spends the first chapter giving us as clear a defense of Christ's deity as you're going to find anywhere in his letters.